Not too many years ago, C.J. Mahaney wrote a book titled Humility. And his friend Josh Harris wrote the foreword for the book. And this is what he said in the foreword. Humility is a funny thing. On the one hand, it's an extremely desirable trait. Most of us as Christians would say we want to be humble, or at least we want to be thought of as humble. At the same time, few of us have given attention to what being humble actually means. Even fewer have considered what it takes to grow in humility. In place of true humility, we learn certain words or phrases we believe that make us sound humble. Oh, really, it was nothing. Or anyone could have done it. We cast our eyes down and shrug our shoulders or maybe even blush. Of course, we really don't mean it. Inside, we're congratulating ourselves for how humble we we have been. (laughs) We want the reputation, yet we don't know how to get the reality. Like children playing dress up in their parents' clothes. We're only acting humble. None of it really fits us. Like children playing dress up in their parents' clothes, we, we are only acting a certain way, but it doesn't really fit us. Well, if Josh Harris is right, if humility for many of us is like playing dress up, then my, my question is, how do we make humility our everyday attire instead of just playing dress up? How is it are we, we are to make humility our everyday attire or As Peter teaches, how are we supposed to clothe ourselves with humility? The word clothe in the Greek means to to tie on or to make a knot. You might think of uh, having an apron and you put the apron on and then in order to tie it around your waist, you you tie it tightly, you make a, a knot. It's something that you don't want to have stripped away from you in any way. So uh Peter's instruction is to tie humility on. It's a command to action. It's humility is not something you wait for it to grow. Humility doesn't grow naturally. Humility is something that's cultivated. And so Peter is saying you've got to tie it on. You've got to you've got to keep retying. You've got to keep making adjustments because it, pride tends to get in the way. So he's saying tie this back on. I know I've told you about it before, but let's retie the knot of humility. And throughout this entire letter, I've made this assumption. I've made the assumption that as Peter is giving instructions to the first century church, by and large, he's being informed by the information that he got from Christ. So throughout the letter, we've been able to see what Peter is telling to the congregation. And then we're asking ourselves, where might Peter have learned this lesson on humility? And, of course, we're not certain what Peter may have been thinking about at this point. But let's just try to imagine Peter saying here at the close of the uh, close of his letter, you need to you need to tie on humility. You get something you need to tie around your waist and you need, need to make a knot so it doesn't come off. What could he have been thinking of at that point in his reflection on his time with Christ? Where was it that Jesus tied on Humility. Where is it a moment where he bent down? Well, there are many places, but the place I'm thinking about is the Last Supper. The disciples are in the upper room. As each one walks in, they all walk by the foot washing station. 
None of them able to wash Jesus's feet. None of them even able to wash their own feet. Certainly unable to wash somebody else's feet. And they're reclining at the table. Meanwhile, while they're reclining at the table, an old argument breaks out. Hey, which one of us is going to be the greatest? This is not something that happens uh, just here. It happens throughout the life. You, you can imagine 12 guys in a room, testosterone building. And so here they are. They all walk by the foot washing station. Now, now they're taking the, the helium hits of pride. They're all puffing themselves up. And, and, and meanwhile, what is Jesus doing? He's taking something off his outer garments. And what is he doing? He's girding himself. He's tying himself with a towel of humility. Jesus gets up from the table and he washes the bloated disciples. The creator bends down to serve the creation. I don't have any doubt that this was a, a searing sort of scarring moment for each disciple. As Jesus walked in front of each man. I'm guessing you could just hear the drops that are coming off of the foot or off of the towel into the basin. There was no, nothing to be said. They were so ashamed that they hadn't thought of it. And, and not only had they not thought of it, they'd recently been in a conversation about who's going to be the greatest. And here, the person that is the greatest is doing this. He's bending down to serve them. So, so one way we, we make humility the everyday attire of our lives is, is we have a fresh memory of the extent of our own pride. We're just aware when we wake up, we're aware as we go through the day that we're not very far away from the disciples. No matter how close we may feel to Jesus, just pride is always going to have a presence. And we just need to be freshly aware that pride could come in, that, that I could wake up today and start taking the hits of helium off of some part of my life, just trying to puff myself up to make myself look bigger in some way. And the second thing that we need to have a, a fresh memory of is the humility of Christ. That, that he was the one who tied on a towel around himself. And then he says to me, as he says to Peter, he says to you, as he says to Peter, you see what I've done now, you go and you do the same. Let me just pause here at this point and say something to those who might be in attendance this morning who are evaluating Christianity. Every other religion or every other God that you may serve, like success or popularity, comfort, health, they all tell you what to do to get it. But whether you're serving another God, whether you're serving another world religion, whether you're following after that, or whether you're just serving yourself in some way, you're trying to grab for something, you're trying to grab for someone, and that's really your God. All of those tell you what you must do to get it, and only Christianity tells you what God has done to get you. Think about it. Every every master says this is what you have to do to serve me. If you want to get into heaven, if you want to be successful, there are certain sacrifices you have to make. But in Christianity, God sacrifices to get you. Christianity is upside down compared to religion. Religion. 
Because woven in the, in the fabric of religion is pride. What you have done is always going to be in the mix. And it's not so with Christianity. Christianity, real Christianity, breeds a humility because you're not in it. You become a Christian because Jesus paid it all. So you don't have a little fabric in there that you can see be prideful and say, well, gosh, Jesus did a whole lot. But, you know, I'd like to inform you of the thing that I did. But, but religion, another master, you, you, that's bread in the fabric where you would say, yeah, but I made these certain sacrifices to get there. But only Christ made the sacrifice in Christianity. So when we talk about Christianity, we're not talking about religion. Religion is something different. It's religion is upside down compared to where Christianity is. If you're a follower of Christ, my question would be here, are, are you decreasing your hits on pride? Are you retying the towel every morning of humility? Are, are you freshly reminded of yourself and the words of John the Baptist that he must become greater and I must become less? Or as C.S. Lewis said, it's not humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less and less. See, so often you think you think, well, if I'm humble, I'm going to think less of myself. And that just turns into pride. Oh, I'm so I'm so humble. I'm so yes, I'm. That's the problem. You got I in the first statement. And really a humility is just not thinking of yourself and thinking of other people. If you're a Christian If your beliefs have caused you to look down rather than to bend down, then you've believed in an imitation of Christianity. Another observation about Peter's letter is throughout the letter, he unpacks a variety of opportunities for to exercise humility, to to tie on humility. And, And as I list just a few of them, think of these as maybe gauges that you would look at and say, well, how am I doing in in this process of humility. Peter has unpacked a number of places that I get a chance to exercise humility. So if I look at this as a gauge, how does that tell me about my humility? Chapter two, verse 11, Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. In other words, this is not our home. We're we're pilgrims. We're just passing through. We're we're on one side of the Jordan today, but we're moving across the Jordan into the promised land. So we're not setting up camp here. And so the things of this world, the things that we'd be trapped by, the things, the things that would cause pride, the things that would cause anxiety, we're letting those things go. We're, we're, we're beginning to drop those things off once we've, uh, we're living for Christ and we're moving in a different direction. So the things of the world begin to pile up and we begin to drop those things off because we're, we're not settlers, we're pilgrims. We're on our way somewhere. I don't know if you've read this uh, book. I think it's the, uh, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the series. But it's a l- little books about American history. And one of the books is called Across the Wide and Lonesome Prairie. And this particular, it's a historical fiction based on some diaries of some people that traveled east to west to settle the west. And in this particular diary, it was about a movement from Missouri to Oregon. 
And so in a typical movement back in the 1850s or so, what would happen is a group of people would gather together and there'd be several sort of leaders, people who had taken the path before. And as all the people gathered in Missouri at the one launching spot, you can imagine they've got their, their wagon and their covered wagon. And inside, they have whittled their life down to whatever fits into the covered wagon. And so here they are. They're on their way from Missouri and they're on their way to Oregon. And it takes several months to do it. And one of the biggest problems in the journey outside of sort of disease and being tired is that You have to cross so many rivers. And so it's always a danger to cross the rivers. And of course, the more you have to get across the river, the more difficult it becomes. So you come up to these river edges and you look back at our wagon and you go, man, we need to we need to get rid of some stuff in the wagon because this river is going to be difficult. And in this particular part of the letter, they're at the point where they're having to really unload some things from the wagon. And this is how the author described it. After Pa talked to Ma, he took the big trunk full of my sister's things and left it by the side of the trail. He also set out the porcelain washbowl, the cabinet that had been our grandparents, Ma's wedding dress, a box of his own tools. When the wagons pulled out, it looked like we left behind a general store. What will be left when we get to Oregon? Ma looked at me and said, don't worry, this isn't our home. So is this this what marks your life? Are you tying on humility because the things of this world, you're just a sojourner, you're just an exile. The the things that used to preoccupy your time, the things that created anxiety, the things that were brought pride, you begin to let that off on the side of the trail because, you know what, this isn't my home. I'm not going to be measured by what I look like, or I'm not going to be ultimately measured by where I live. I'm not. These are not the measuring sticks that I use because I'm going somewhere. And so we need to ask ourselves if we look at this gauge or the things of the world beginning to grow strangely dim. Second opportunity for humility. Peter mentioned several different places is the word submission. Chapter 2, verse 13, we're to submit to every human institution. Following that, if you're a worker, you're supposed to submit to your boss. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Chapter 5, verse 5, members of the church are supposed to submit to their elders. And we've talked about this all the way along, that this word submission in the Greek is a military term. It means to line up under. And anytime you're lining up underneath somebody or some institution, it's an opportunity for humility. It, it opens up a, an opportunity to display humility. And so when you check the gauge, whichever one of those situations you may find yourself in, it, is, it has that humble meter reading for wives, for workers, for citizens, for members of a church. Are you trying to find a way to fall up underneath the leadership of somebody else? And if you're not, you might want to ask yourself, am I really being clothed with humility? The third way, husbands, honor your wives. 
And it says it sort of this way. Husbands, don't use your strength because your your wife is the weaker vessel to press down. But use your strength to bend down and lift up. Husbands, honor your wives like a, a setting on a ring might might honor a stone. You get up underneath and you you put it, you you set it in just the right place. You need to use your strength not to, to dominate, not to press down, but to get down and honor this person, to bring your wife up to the person that people can say, oh, wow, that's his wife. See, husbands, if you're if you're here today, that you, you have an opportunity for humility. I never forget my my uncle. He's still alive. My aunt is no longer alive. And I guess he's probably about 80. And he's a three-star general in the Marines. And he's the kind of person, like, when, you, when he walks in the room, everybody knows. You know, just this kind of personality. He's 6'5", played center for the University of Arkansas uh, back in the day. And just, you know, he's a Marine. He's like a man's man. And when he walks in, it's just like you feel like saluting, even though you've never met the man. And so I remember going to Camp Lejeune, uh, which is the Marine base, as you know, and the, the head of Camp Lejeune, the top person is called the commandant. So he runs the entire military operation there. And my uncle was the commandant. So when I came onto the base, I'd say, you know, do you know my uncle Norm? <laughs> no, I don't, bud. Uh, Norman H. Smith. Oh, yes, sir. I know Norman H. Smith. And he'd just escort me into Uncle Norm's, you know, nice house, not the barracks. And, and, you know, my uncle was always surrounded by other sort of great, great men, great military men. And it always fascinated me when his wife came into the room. And it was with somebody, he was with somebody who didn't know his wife. And he would take them by the hand, this this huddle a sort of puffed up pride marine pride and he'd say i don't think you've had the honor of meeting my wife and i wish you could see her reaction to his statement you see he was using he wasn't using his power or position to press down he was using it to get down and to display his wife so Peter gives us many opportunities throughout the letter to display humility. One last one. Chapter four, verse 14, being insulted for your beliefs. Peter says you're going to be insulted for your beliefs when you're insulted. Is an opportunity for humility. What's your natural reaction to being insulted? <laughs> oh, I can play this game. I can make you feel smaller than you just made me feel. Well, yeah, you think that's small? I can. I mean, I, I can just. It's so terrible, so easy to fall into that. But it's an opportunity for humility when you're insulted, instead of to insult back, to snap back, but to say, "I'm just gonna, I'm gonna respond in a Christ-like manner." That these people were going to be insulted for their faith. And we, we live in an increasingly hostile culture ourselves to the word of God. And if you stand on a value like biblical traditional marriage. And it's not inside this church. As it could be inside another church. You, you will experience insult. 
So the question is, when you experience that insult, what do you do at that point? See, that's the moment for humility. And I think Peter tells us you respond, you give a defense for what you believe with what does he say? With gentleness and respect. Humility is not saying anything. It's saying something in the right tone. And so Peter gives us all kinds of opportunity to clothe ourselves with humility. Third way he gives us an opportunity to clothe ourselves with or the third way we clothe ourselves with humility is by embracing grace. Look at verse four. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. Peter's quoting Proverbs 3. What a chilling statement. If you're a prideful person, who's on the other side? God. You've just adopted God as your enemy, as a prideful person. And so pride refuses to embrace the grace of God. When you, when you embrace the grace of God, you say something like this. Jesus, I repent. I, I was going in this direction and I'm turning around or I'm turning away from my old life and I'm moving into a new way. I, I'm turning away from my old sets of beliefs and behavior. I'm, I'm turning away from all of my pseudo saviors, people or things that I, I thought if I had those things, those would bring me life. I'm turning away from those things and I've set my attention. I've set my affection. I've, I've set my direction towards you. And you also say this, I'm turning away from my own righteousness. And this might be a bigger turn for some people in here. When you embrace the gospel, you turn away from your own righteousness that you used to use to demand that God let you into heaven. See, I used to be a good person and I used it to say, God, see, I'm better than most people. So you should open the door for me. And that's pride. And you have to turn away from that and embrace that Jesus has paid it all. And you're not in that mix. Embracing grace is turning completely away from yourself, both your sin and your self-saving Methods. Two ways that I was thinking of that people reject grace. Two common ways. If you if you go to somebody and you explain grace and you know they've rejected it, if they say something like this, well, I don't think I'm all that bad. And I don't believe in a God who would send good, decent people like me to hell. So I'm doing fine. I just don't think I'm that bad. I mean, compared to everybody else, I'm in the top 10%. So I get in. And so I just don't think that there's a God out there who would do that to people that are good like me or my grandmother. That's a rejection of grace. That's pride. Second way you hear it. See, a little harder to detect here. You go and you explain the gospel and somebody says, man, you're right. I'm, I'm just as terrible. I'm, I'm worse than you know. And, and God could never accept me because of the awful things that I've done. See, see, Paul, for you, God's grace might be sufficient, but I've got to do some things. I've got to first clean myself up. 
See, I'm unique. My sin is unique. And God's grace might be sufficient for you, but from real sinners like me, we've got to do something. That's called pride. See, it's a rejection on both ends. For for the first group, the, the, the grace is not good enough for them. And for the second group, they reject it because the grace is too good. Couldn't possibly be that good. And you find those rejections happening in your conversations with people who don't understand the gospel. You know, when you run into that second group on the surface, they, they seem very humble. But then you realize that their, their uniqueness, their feeling that their sins are unique, that, that they're so big that they uniquely fall outside of the grace of God. That's, that's pride. Tim Keller says this. Sometimes you hear this rejection of grace this way. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Ever heard that? I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, which is another way of saying God's verdict doesn't control my life. My verdict controls my life. That's called pride. You see, it it, it forces its way out in so many different areas, and it's very possible you could be in this place. It's very possible you could be here saying, I've really rejected the grace of God because really my own verdict rules how I think about myself. God's verdict doesn't rule. Or, yes, I know I've got grace in the mix, but really I'm so bad I've got to do some things in order for God to really love me. Then you haven't really embraced grace. Clothe yourselves with humility. Embrace grace. Finally, let's get to verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Notice the connection. Humble yourselves, verse 6. Humble yourselves. And one way you humble yourselves is by casting all of your anxieties on him. It's not a, it's not, in the NIV they have as a separate sentence, but it's one long sentence. You're humbling yourselves. And one of the ways you humble yourself is you're casting your anxiety on him. You might remember the parable of the sower. Remember the sower goes out to sow the seed and it falls on four different types of soil. And first it's the, the hard path has no effect. And then the second one is the, the rocky soil. There's just not much soil. So it sort of springs up, but persecution comes and it withers away. And then the third soil, remember the third soil thorns. And Jesus mentions three thorns, one of them, which is anxiety and anxiety chokes out the effectiveness of God's word the the word choke means to cause to to wheeze and I wonder how many and I mean this in the nice way wheezers we have here this morning I mean you look fine But you're barely breathing because you've got some thorn of anxiety and it's really puncturing your diaphragm. So you're just barely getting a breath. Even though you look all put together, there's some piece or some number of thorns that are really anxious driven. And so you can barely function because of your anxiety. And of course, then my question becomes, how do you get rid of this 
How do you cast out this anxiety? And let me just close with three suggestions. One, you admit it. You just say it out loud. See, a a prideful person can't say they need help. They can't admit that they're riddled with anxiety. See, Peter, Peter makes the assumption here, cast all your anxieties. What is he assuming? You have anxieties. He knows you're going to have anxieties. And what you need to do is say, I have anxieties. But pride won't say that. Pride reduces and says, no, no, no. Let's keep this secret. We don't need to say it out loud. Don't admit that you have anxiety. I mean, that's terrible. You're a Christian. Well, no, Peter's talking to Christian. He's saying, I know you have anxieties. You just need to say it out loud. And if you can't say it out loud, then I would say you're driven by pride. Second thing to pray, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. I think that was one of the verses here. With prayer and petition, present your request to God. Turn your anxiety and into an opportunity for prayer. It's possible that um, the best thing you could do for humility is to, after the service closes, is to come up and ask an elder for prayer. Just to come up and say it out loud, hey, i got all kinds of anxieties. I'm barely breathing. I mean, you can't tell it when you look at me, but I'm just pierced. My diaphragm's just at 10%. And coming forward is an act of humility. See, you think, oh, gosh, if I come forward, people will know we have, I have problems. Well, guess what? We already know you have problems. <laughs> Everyone here has problems. There's no one. That, all the people leaving aren't like, well, they're okay. Everybody's got problems. So we know it. But coming forward is an act of humility. You say, I've got anxiety. I've got a problem. I need to say it out loud. And then what are you going to get? Prayer. You're going to get your your problem, a petition to God Almighty. Third and final piece, trust. Cast your anxiety on him. Why? Why would you cast your anxiety on God? Because he cares for you. He has an interest in you. He has an affection for your situation. He's not a father that's distant in any way. He's the the great father that has an affection, has an interest, has power to make things change. So cast your anxieties on somebody who really cares for you. He's in control. It says you're under God's mighty hand. God's mighty hand can open up a way that you couldn't possibly see. God's mighty hand could protect you in ways that you can't imagine. But so often what happens is we think our hand is mighty. And as long as I have it in my control, then I'm okay. And it's just when I get to the place that things like I let go of, I have this anxiety. Have you ever noticed that when you let go of things, when things get outside of your control, what happens? Anxiety comes. This is kind of embarrassing to admit, admit but maybe this is part of me, you know, ex- examining or just saying well, how humble I am. So you think how humble I am. But if I were to get in my car this afternoon and drive to Atlanta, I would not, I think, at all think about safety. I would just drive. I mean, I'd just get in, got some tunes on my iPod and whatever, and I'm in Atlanta, you know, seven hours later, whatever. I don't think it would occur to me to think about safety. 
Why? I'm driving. I get to control. Little do I know all the other things that are happening around me, but I have some sense of control. If I were to get into a plane today and drive to Atlanta or fly to Atlanta, I wouldn't drive. I do this little ritual. You wouldn't even necessarily notice it. But when I get on the plane, you know, when you're going down the little, you know, what do they call it? The little jetway. And you get right before you get into the, the door, the, the sort of thing comes around. And there's a little bit of the fuselage that's sort of exposed, you know. And I just put my hand on the plane. And it looks like I'm like helping myself in, but I'm offering this little weak prayer. <laughs> Lord, see, now it's in your hand. That's what I say. What's embarrassing about that? See, it's not in your hands, Lord, if I'm in control behind my car. But when I'm not in control, Lord, now this one is really in your hands. And Peter comes nicely just to rebuke me. To say, Paul, you are under at all times the mighty hand of God. And he has an interest in you. So at all times, you can let go and let God be in control. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this, um, these, just, these two concepts, humility and anxiety, are ever-present. Probably more prevalent than we would even imagine. And so I pray as you give us opportunities for humility that we would step into those positions in a Christ-like manner. I especially pray for those who are wheezing. They're being choked by anxiety. They're being choked by things that really aren't in their control And they really don't trust that you're good. And so they're anxious. Would they avail themselves, I pray, to prayer this morning? Lord, we live in a a world, live in a city. People are anxious, anxious about their future. Anxious about relationships. Anxious about all kinds of things. And... I pray that this congregation would would filter out this afternoon, this week, to places and stand with confidence, with courage, with a peace that passes all understanding because of what you've done, that you have paid it all. In Jesus' name, amen.